Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast discussing the strange, eclectic, macabre and esoteric, hosted by Rick Palmer. Hello, my guest for this episode is cryptozoologist Andy McGrath. Andy is a researcher, lecturer and filmmaker of various cryptids, especially those in the UK. He has a blog called Beasts of Britain and earlier this year brought out a book of the same name. Despite the relatively small size of the British Isles, it seems there is a plethora of unusual creatures stalking the landscape from Surrey to Scotland. It was great talking to him. This episode was recorded in September 2018. Hey, uh, Andy, well, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I, I'm very, very happy to be here. That's, that's great. It's, uh, it's great to have you on. Um, so uh, in, you sent me a little bit of a, a blog, um, a bio about yourself, um, just uh, kind of describing um, what you do with, um, with Beasts of Britain. Um, and you mentioned that uh, you've been doing investigation into cryptozoology for now for about 25 years. Um, just want to tell us a little bit uh, about how you got into cryptozoology to begin with. Well, it's um, I, I'm, so I'm 42 years old. Um, so I was a child, I guess, in the 70s when, early 80s when things like the In Search of series was on television and Arthur C. Clarke's uh, show as well, and you know things about the Bigfoot and, and Nessie and the Palace and Gimlin footage just kind of piqued my interest. Um, you know, it, probably it was about 27 years ago now. So it was 25 years when I started writing the book in 2016. It's now about 27 years that I started getting into it seriously. And I would just collect sightings and, you know, compile reports and compare things that I had found in different places of the world. And it was a very private uh, kind of hobby. So I've been a singer for 30 years this year. And um, like most musicians, you know, I have a job, I work, I do normal things. And I kind of wound that down. And uh, two years ago, my wife said to me, look, you need a hobby. You know, you just live in London. You're working all the time. We've got two kids. Why don't you do something with this monster thing that you're into? That's what she calls it. What about this monster thing? <laughs> and I said, um, <laughs> right. okay, yeah, sure, maybe I can do a blog or something like that. And another friend had also challenged me at the time to prove that there was more than just Nessie in the UK. There were other things. And I thought it was, it was an easy challenge, you know. Uh, to overcome, so I started putting some stuff together for him too, and I approached um, Adam Davis and Carl Shuker, and I said, "Well, maybe I won't do a book. Maybe I'll just go and pitch a TV series straight away," which was obviously insane because I'd never done anything like that before. But I had a few contacts, and um, right. I spoke to Carl Shuker and Adam Davis, and they were like, "Oh yeah, that sounds really interesting. Uh, good luck with that. And this is what you should do. And if you decide to write a book." go about it this way and it's better to have a book first before you pitch because you've got more um it's more solid then it's harder to steal your idea because it's you know it's it's in print essentially and um i just started a little blog and it turned into chapters and that then turned into a book so i was interviewing about it and releasing you know part of chapters of the book for about a year before i published it um, and it just started to grow in popularity, and I don't know why. Essentially, people are, are are liking it. I mean, they're not liking it enough to make me rich, but there are a couple of sales pinging right. in now and again. Um, uh, but it does seem to be, you know, quite popular. This concept, a piece of Britain that there's 
other creatures in the UK, or there may still be a few, you know, unexplained, unknown animals out there in our country. Yeah, definitely. It's it's interesting you say that because um, I have to admit, when you think of cryptozoology, you, you kind of well, apart yeah, like you say, apart from Nessie, I mean, most of them tend to be in other places in, in America, definitely. Yeah. Um, but did you find did you find that actually these kind of things? The, it was a case of the more you look, the more you found, and they were kind of always there? Or Definitely. These legends, these kind of legends. These, these legends and lots of modern-day sightings too. So one of the points of the book is that I wanted to only concentrate on modern-day sightings of things like, like monsters, sea monsters, the British Bigfoot, some Dogman reports, what's sometimes referred to as Littlefoot, like a diminutive Bigfoot-like creature, uh, unidentified <laughs> flying cryptids, the big cats, of course, as we're all aware of that phenomenon, whether we're yeah. into this thing or not, and also lots of out-of-place animals. So I do a whole section on animals that have come to the UK and uh, thrived, have been released or let go or bred and they've escaped and become part of the natural environment, like wallabies and, and things like that. So that's included in the book too. Um, right. So there's... Oops, you know, I, I like the... Uh... The the acronym is uh, UPA. UPA, I know. I mean, I mean, they're not. I'm, I'm sure none of this is very original. I, I I definitely did the UFCs for unidentified flying cryptids, and and the UPAs. I'm sure somebody else has used that acronym for something else. Um, but I just it was just an easier way to to say it. Um, one of the interviews this morning pointed out to me that UFCs UFC also stands for Ultimate Fighting Championship or something. Uh, yes, <laughs> I don't know anything about that kind of thing, you see. So and he explained the whole thing to me. It sounds horrible, actually. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, yeah, just like like boxing for people that hate each other or something, right? <laughs> so. Um, yeah, essentially, it's like boxing with yeah, it's it's with kicking and less way less rules. Okay. You can just pretty much do whatever you yeah, want. So it's like so, a yes, yeah, it's, it's 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 pretty violent. A street fight in a boxing ring, basically, or something like that. In, in a big in a big metal cage. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. So, um, I mean, I remembered something like that uh, years and years ago with an octagon ring and a hoist Gracie and um, those Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys. Uh, maybe in the nineties or something. Maybe it's the same thing. I don't know. Right. Anyway, so there seem to be these reports throughout the country. Some are more rare, like the flying cryptids, and some are very common, like lake monsters or, or bigfoot reports. And big cats, of course, being the most common out of all of them altogether. Yes. And I just thought, well, people need to know about this. Well, psychologically, it's easier for us to say, just think. If you look uh, to the Himalayas or to the Pacific Northwest and say, yes, there is something there in that place far away in these dense forests or these lonely mountains, it's easier to conceptualize that from your country being somewhere else than it is to conceptualize something in your own land. And then you have to take stock of the way your land works and looks and is um, set up and, and get a good understanding of it and say, well, is this possible? That was part of the book as well. I did a whole bit on um, habitat, you know, and urban population right. and urban sprawl. And um, you know, just try to find out exactly what the situation was. Like. I found this amazing uh, assessment that was called the National Ecosystem Assessment. It was done in 2012. And they discovered that 6.8% of the UK's total land area could be classified as urban, uh, urban sprawl, which included rural development and roads. 
and then it broke they broke it down between the different you know, countries in the UK. Um, so I was explaining this bit this morning about the countries, of course, you know all about that as I would as well. So it was 10.6% of England, 1.9% of Scotland, which is tiny, 3.6% uh, Northern Ireland, 4.1% of Wales. And I was like, okay, wow, so that's amazing. And that was always my experience when I went out on these little investigations, was just the total blackness, you know, of the countryside. There's no illumination. You know, there's a few towns and whatnot, and once you're outside, we all, all of our towns are like that, connected by these large green spaces. There's nothing. There's nobody there in much of it. And um, we've got loads of animals. You know, we've got loads of food. We've got loads of berries and all kinds of other things, too. Thought, okay, so it's it becomes reasonable to me now, suddenly, that there could be something that we're not seeing because we're not essentially, you know, walking off the path you know, to the fields. You're not picking a point in a wood or... Uh, you're not stopping at the side of the motorway somewhere and, and walking off into the distance, are you? You know, for ten or twenty miles, because there's nothing that way. There's nothing to take you there. Um, so my mind sort of thinking, okay, so we've got the eyewitnesses that they're, they're corroborating each other's stories. They're unrelated, and we seem to have the habitat as well. Maybe this is plausible. Great. So, um, so yeah, I mean, one thing I was going to ask is um. I think there is that kind of conception, perhaps, um, with cryptozoology in in the UK. is It's a smaller, it's a smaller mm. space, like you, like you were saying. Um, in the Pacific Northwest, there's vast wildernesses yeah. and other places where where there are reported hominids, like is Siberia or I mean, or the yes, jungles of Borneo. But do you, so, do you think yeah. that really there there is the there is that kind of um, space for, for i'm for definitely yeah i mean i'm definitely convinced of the space because of the isolation and the um the type of rural population that exists in the country as well um i think definitely gives that 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 space for for things to be there in certain areas without being detected so i think there's something um in england there's 0.5 million people only that live in sparse settings. Um, so this is, you know, the same way when we've got these, not vast, but these big landscapes where we're not, we don't have a lot of urban habitation. And in Scotland, it's even worse. There's only 0.5 million people in these areas. Uh, and, you know, if you've been in the countryside, if you've stayed there or if you've lived there, I've spent some time in a lot of uh, rural areas in Wales and I grew up in Wales. Um, you really see that, you know, it's a driving kind of situation. You're not walking around. You're not walking between each area. You you can't. There's no routes. You know, it's roads. You drive everywhere. And actually, most of the Bigfoot sightings that we get, for instance, are either made by dog walkers or people driving their cars. Um, rarely by people out there looking for something like me. It's always something like, you know, I was walking my dog when suddenly I saw this big thing, like a man monkey or a giant chimpanzee on two legs or i was driving my car and this big ape man walked across the road the same way as the american sightings are described yeah but for the most part and um it's the naturalness that you look for for in those sightings it's the um the the lack of bigfoot on the brain you know it's not a ph known phenomenon here <clears throat> and um and at the same time we don't have anything like bears to really stand in for that kind of sized creature so what are they seeing? That's the big question. 
yeah, definitely. Um, so in, in um, on your site, you kind of break down the the cryptids that you um, write about into like more or less, I'd say five categories called of Bigfoot or Woodwows. Yeah, the, the traditional. Uh, and then name. there's yeah, and then there's like Dogman, the Lake and Sea Monsters, Unidentified Flying Cryptids, and then the Out of Place Animals, the Oopers. Um, would you like to just kind of go through each of them and talk about a, a one a case that kind of stands out? Yes, absolutely. So I mean, starting really where we should all start uh, with the Lake Monsters and Sea Monsters. Yes. Um, I, mean, this I remember is... you. So I'm sorry. You sent me a picture of you um, in in Windermere, Lake Windermere, right? And that's, yes. Um, uh, yeah. Bonessi. Bonessi. I'm intrigued by Bonessi. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a fascinating um, it's a fascinating aspect of the whole thing, Bonessi, because there were really not many, very many common sightings. There has been sightings in the past, but there was an outbreak since 2006 i think it's 12 maybe 13 sightings and and several photos or purported photos of mm. the creature um the 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 section in my book about it, it's actually bonessi dragon of the north that's what it's called and it's one of the late monsters that we deal with so i think that the speed limit the speedboat limit that was imposed on the lake in 2006 has actually led to the animal being seen uh, a little more during the daytime. That's just a theory. You know, it's it's not uh, uh, factual any more than the, the creature is itself. Um, I think it was first cited by a uh, journalism lecturer, Steve Burnett, and he saw a line of three humps in the water about 20 feet long, 2006. It went in the straight line of the lake. His wife also saw the um, the creature at the time. And um, they, they were, you know, kind of stumped by it. Then you have Lyndon Adams. Uh, he sees it in 2007. Takes a photo that's not essentially very descriptive. You know, a black streak on, on the water's surface. Um, somebody's boat is allegedly in the north of the lake, which we're, we're primarily stationed in um, near the River Rothe while we were there. Somebody's boat is hit by a very large object. And they're all woken up at night and they come out and they, they can't see anything. Um, it's the Tom Pickle sighting of 2011. Was, he's kayaking on the lake in a sort of a, a work outing. He wanted this adventure outing that he had at work. Himself and uh, his colleague, they see a giant dark brown snake with humps measuring three car lengths. And so the skin was kind of seal like, but the creature had a, a completely abnormal shape. It was very fast and undulated classic lake monster description and um, it was also observed by his colleague Sarah Harrington and his picture is one of the classic pictures the almost the ridged or the the close humps traveling through uh, through the water in Wintermere um, and there's been quite a few sightings since then but my favorite one was actually caught on uh, a game cam in 2014 by um, autographer magazines Ellie Williams and she'd gone up to get the changing of the seasons. Then she just popped the game cam, you know, onto a onto a tree and left. And it was set at one minute intervals throughout the day. She takes the footage home, and and what has she got? But some strange humped creature with a big swan-like neck off in the distance in the middle of the lake. And the, the photo, because it's a great camera that they're testing out there, the photo is very very good. Um. It it's a really interesting photo. It's uh, when I saw it, I um, 
it's you know it's it's, it's reminiscent of a, like classic. a classic a yeah classic and, and yet and we've never ever had a photo of Nessie like that you know of that description now yeah you know I've, I've done all kinds of investigations of the photo it's never been debunked or disproved or shown to be a fake and a lot of people have tried to, to take it on. Now, that's not my mm. expertise, essentially. So, yeah, I would say that I'm 98% sure that it is what it's supposed to be. The magazine had no interest in that kind of story. Um, and it's strange that they yeah. ran it, but they ran it because of what they found. And they've never had anything similar since. So I, I think it, it adds to its validity, but, you know, that nothing's 100%. Um, I just... You know, I just really believe that there there was something there, and there were there were a lot of sightings. Now, when we went to the lake, we went out of the water. This is a really popular tourist area. You know, it's not as big as Loch Ness. There's um there's boats on it all day long, every day. You know, being rented out. I think it's about maybe about two hundred thirty-seven feet deep. I'm not sure. Let me just find out. Um, I don't. Pretty me, unfortunately, it's at least over two hundred feet deep. Anyhow, and um, you know there is a trout, a trout farm at the other end of the River Rothe, and that's where most of the sightings have taken place. And that corroborates some Loch Ness sightings, where most of the Loch Ness monster sightings that are not Midloch are actually near all of the Rivermouth villages. And the theory is that you know the fish enter into the, the loch into deeper water from the rivers, and they're vulnerable and that's perhaps where the creature lies in wait. So there's um some possible, you know, some possible theory behind the, 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 their presence there. And of course, the Lake District, there are so many other lakes there as well. Um, so we were very, you know, very impressed by the um by the lake and by its, its busyness. It's hard to it's hard to justify some creature being there all the time seeing it's such a busy place it's not like i mean Loch Ness is big even when it's busy it doesn't seem full um this place seemed really really full of people and boats so that was a bit of a difficult thing to reconcile but you know the witnesses they don't really gain anything from from reporting these animals or taking these pictures you don't get lots of money and prizes mm. you normally get ridicule <laughs> you know there are no rewards for saying you've seen a Loch Ness I mean maybe the sun will give you 200 pounds or something but after that you know it's just people calling you for, for details forever and ever and ever and your colleagues have a funny opinion of you after that don't they um, you know shall we promote Rick this mm. year or actually no Rick believes in Nessie Bigfoot let's get the other guy in we won't have to listen to that, though. I'm not saying that happens, but I can imagine yeah. people, average normal people, feeling a bit strange about such a sighting. Yeah. I mean, I do take um, 14 times with me into work, so you never oh, know, you might be right. There you <laughs> go. Have you been promoted recently? I'm just kidding. Uh, no. 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 <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, so, um, yeah. You'd be... <laughs> um, so, um so when something like this happens and and you go to and, and you and you yourself investigate them do you where do you kind of start with that in terms of i mean in terms of trying to work out what it might be or are are you there to kind of to try and 
um, see it for yourself? And I mean, you kind of go there without preconceptions, or no? I mean, I, I, I think because I've been studying the lake monster phenomenon for so long, I, I definitely have preconceptions which I, I am unable to rid myself of. I think it's important to be honest about that. Um, and, and mine is that, that it's a it's a it's a living fossil of some kind. Uh, the same one that's seen in Loch Ness and Borar and Lake Champlain, which I was just recently at with the um, the Champ Lady Kitty Elizabeth for a week in September. And uh, you know, varying um, versions or varying types of these creatures are seen the world over, and they're so regular in their description. Um, and so uh, their description sounds so much in the face of the regular monster imposters that people employ to to excuse them that it's I don't really know what else we can come up with that fits it. I know people have said, well, perhaps, you know, some sort of long-necked giant seal that we've never been aware of. Well, the seals are very conspicuous creatures. If there was such a species around, I think we would we would have found it. Um, uh, it, it would have slapped. It would have slapped um, someone in the face with it. She saw that today. Yeah. <laughs> that was very funny. <laughs> um, <laughs> that poor guy. But I mean, seals. Yeah. <laughs> like all animals, they. This is another point where animals act very individually. And I saw a documentary on sharks, where somebody was free diving with great white sharks, and they were saying, "Get out of the water, that one's that's so and so. He's aggressive, and oh, we can get back in now." This girl here, she's a nice curious shark and they identified personalities and characteristics in each animal and that makes sense to me you know um and i think it's the same uh with seals and everything else and occasionally animals are curious and they try to get close to us but most wild animals and it's the reason i'm making this point actually try to stay away from us even predators like bears and other creatures try to stay out of our way they don't want to be around us. And I think with these types of creatures, um, you know, be they living fossils of some kind, like I think, or whatever else they may turn out to be if we ever get an answer, I'm very, very wary of people or any sort of noise and, and um, activity. My mm. theory is that, is that they're nocturnal um, and that they move between, in many cases, between the sea and the lochs and lakes uh, where they can and that we generally see them when they are there, uh, and the you know, the absence of their presence is explained by you know a, a transient um, behaviour that takes them out to sea to search for food or for whatever reason. Now, all around the coast of the British Isles and um, you know in the North Sea and the Atlantic, there are sightings of similar animals, as well as uh, you know around the um, the inner sea lochs of Scotland near Loch Ness. There's been sightings of similar creatures, so for me, that's that's giving it a wider dispersion. And when you look at Loch Ness, you have to, I think, you have to get away from the wild goose chase that it is. And you know, it's all about we can prove Loch Ness or we can't, and that decides everything else. I like yeah. to get the other sightings into to try and validate what I'm looking at. Right. So, in terms of it being a living fossil, is do you think it's something that we have in the fossil record or is it something that we yeah. we don't we don't really know what it is yeah it, could, could it be some kind of unknown animal well i mean it, it could always be an an undiscovered form of one type of animal i i i'm a proponent of the plesiosaur theory i think it's i think it's practical as far as the descriptions are concerned 
um, or you know some form of that that particular animal. I know there were lots of different uh, species in in that particular family, and I, I think there's there's not really much that much else that we can we can put in instead than um, that accounts for it. So when you have the the, the 1999 Doris sighting uh, on on the shore of Loch Ness of a 10 meter long animal with um, you know four flippers, a big fat body, a long tail, and a long neck with a small head. What else have you got that comes mm. to, that's 10 meters long? <laughs> you don't have anything else. Um, and the same with some of these bonusy sightings and some of the land Champlain sightings. Uh, Roland Watson actually has just written a great book, and he's a great Loch Ness monster researcher called When Monsters Come Ashore, and it focuses solely on the land sightings around Loch Ness. There's the um, the Arthur Grant veterinary, the, the veterinarian who had a sighting on his motorbike, you remember that one at night, and drew it exactly like a plesiosaur. And I think it's our, it's the pervading paradigm, it's our conception of what should be and what should not be here that stops us just accepting it. You know, if there was no um, uh, supposed extinction, or if it was appearing in a fossil record beyond that, there would be no problem in accepting this description as one of those animals, in my opinion. But it's, you know, we've got the coelacanth, we've got the horseshoe crab, and many, many other living fossils still around, as well as the fact that crocodiles are still here, you know, after God knows how long they're saying. So, you know, to me, the coelacanth is as good as a dinosaur or an aquatic reptile, you know, from that, the Cretaceous. That's how how much it was missing from the fossil yeah. record. So it's smaller. It's easy to brush away. But it's, in my perspective, it's no different than finding one of these animals still alive. And it seems to be what we're looking at. Um, I'm happy to be wrong about that, but I just don't know what the suppose size, uh, sizes and appearance of the animal what could possibly stand in for it okay and, and in terms of um finding remains is that is that again is it difficult because of its of its nature it's it's probably a solo creature that comes into lakes infrequently so i mean if, when it, if, it, does, yeah. if it does die it might there's those remains might sink to the bottom of the lake but some people think that um, there is some talk about fossil evidence of, of plesiosaurs carrying uh, stones around in their stomachs, which some animals use for um, you know, to, for digestion, and and other animals actually use for for ballast. You know, some right. particular um, uh, aquatic creatures. But I don't really know much about that. The fact that there hasn't been a, a a really well-established carcass um, washed up anywhere is quite concerning. But there have been a few that have been um, uh, explained away over the years. Um, when it comes to the the, the uh, subject of carcasses, I think too much is made out of too many normal things most of the time. Um, so you'll probably see on my, my Nessian Friends page, I recently put something that looked very armoured and scaly, like a, a sturgeon, but it was huge, like the size of a Baskin shark huge. Now, if I hadn't mm. been distracted by the skin in the first place, I would have just looked at the ship and said, oh, yeah, that's a Baskin shark. But, mm. you know, I was drawn in by the appearance, and a very good colleague there uh, just explained to me, well, actually, this is the musculature. You know, the skin has rotted away 
so it looks like armor but it's just the fibers of the muscles and then it became really clear like one of those magic eye photos oh yes this is what i'm looking <laughs> at and i think with carcasses nine 99.9.9.9 percent of the time it's always going to be a whale or a shark or something like that have been a few in the past um i still love the description of the um uh the orkney carcass um which uh was washed up i'm just trying to find that there was a long long time ago i'll find this for you actually now this particular uh, carcass you know it was described as being 55 feet long with part of the tail missing and intact it wasn't a rotted away um basking shark carcass and they don't grow that long anyway um it had fibers on the back of its neck that when when the people who found it who were farmers sort of brushed them one way there was like a bioluminescent sheen that came off them um almost sure that the animal had some kind of you know, bioluminescence possibly uh, it had a sheep-like hmm. head, had these sort of short legs, and it looked like a creature, not like a rotted-away creature, like, as we'd see in and say, is, the, is it that, is it this? It was an actual animal that was dead, but intact. And that, to me, is um, it was a very positive sighting. The Ziyumaro carcass of Japan, uh, even that was, though that was very decayed, the ship's biologist drew a picture of its skeletal uh, composition and he drew a pleasure song. Um and the Japanese still believe that's what they found um, so I think you know there are some cases that are more positive than others but um, I try to stay away from it there's some good guys on my pages that sort of weighed in and they're, they're biologists and they weighed in on, on carcasses and I just try to sort of keep my opinions to myself until I get some more informed ones <laughs> personally do you, do, yeah, I was, I was going to ask about that. Do you, do you think that there's just a, a reluctance to kind of do more research into these kind of things? It's scientifically, it's not. It's not kind of. It's it's not accepted to. That is a there's a there's a kind of dogma to to this kind of thing, and any anyone that that kind of goes outside of that is is always going to have trouble. Getting funding and things, and yeah, I mean, I think funding is probably next to nil, unless, of course, you're doing some sort of TV series and they they're funding the expedition. But generally speaking, you know what they're looking for is is entertainment and shots. So it's not really that sure that they'll give you the funding you need. I know Professor Neil Gemmel recently, uh, the um, the um. Uh, he specializes in DNA and especially environmental DNA. So he's taken samples from the law to give it sort of a, a basic overview, a picture of all of the animals that live in Loch Ness. And apparently the, um, uh, the technology now exists to do that. So they're busying away trying to identify all of the creatures that live in the loch with the samples. They've got water samples. It's amazing. Uh, and I was speaking to Todd Isatel, who's also... Um, uh, he did a speech in um, the International Cryptozoology Conference along Coleman in Maine. He did a speech on cryptoscatology. You know, about fine, I know. I mean, the, I don't really want to see the exhibit. They had an exhibit to, I think, go into that side of I took it. It's <laughs> Someone's a got a dirty it, right? job. Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> I mean, I just took his word for it that they had the, <laughs> they had the evidence. I didn't want to look at that at all. So, uh, 
you know, he had that idea too, and people are looking more for things like that. I, I think sampling the environment like a lock, like a lake, that's a great idea, and I'm eager to see what they come up with. But I'm also pretty worried that if they don't find what they're looking for, they will be taken as read that there is nothing there. And um, I don't necessarily think that proves right. that, essentially. I don't think that's what it's there to prove, that there is nothing there, but more so to, to identify a creature if it does exist in that, in that loch. So I, I'd be very, very eager to see what it comes up with. I'm not entirely sure what will happen, to be honest with you. Oh, okay. Um, one thing I, I was thinking is um, uh, how how big do you think these these creatures could get? I mean, um, have you heard of things like uh, yeah? Have you heard of a, a, a sound recording called the bloop? Yes. Um, Didn't they explain that called, away? Didn't they? Yeah. That was, um, was it an iceberg some, or something? Or some sort of seismic. Um, I don't even know what they said it was. Maybe you're right. Maybe it was an iceberg, but um. It was one of these things. I'm sure they, they explained it away. I'm not really sure. I mean, it's all about you know what's in the deep ocean. I was talking to some interviewers the other day about um, cryptids becoming normal parts of the you know the flora, uh, uh, the zoological creatures that we we include in our natural world. I was talking about mm. the kraken, you know, the giant squid, right? So here's the giant squid for years and years. I, I had a family member who was in the Navy that once told that they had one attached to their um, their radar bulb or whatever, a sonar, sorry, uh, module on the bottom of their ship and had all sucker marks over it. And they were, you know, they were really laughed at for saying they had an encounter with a giant squid. This was you know, way back in the Second World War. And... Um, it it was a creature of myth, and if you believed that you saw it, you were you were a liar, or you know somebody that just wasn't to be trusted really with with normal uh, with normal life. Right. And here we are now. You know, there's giant squid footage. There's giant squid carcasses everywhere uh, in museums. They're all over the place, and you you can actually see them in action on the internet. And it's just like, Meh. oh well, you know, what's that? Oh, you know, eighty foot long squid washed up somewhere. Okay, cool. That was the Kraken for hundreds of years. <laughs> and now we don't care. It does not matter. And I wondered to myself, could it be that if we do discover either the Sasquatch or um, whatever Nessie is in years to come, that, you know, 50 years on, it'll be like, oh, look at that. They've got one of the um, Nessie carcasses in here. That's interesting. Or another one washed, yeah. washed up on the Isle of Wight or whatever. Isn't that cool? Or, you know... It's it's a click, you click and move on, right? Right. Um, and would we be in that position? Nobody ever thought we would be in that position with the giant squid, but we are. It's a, it's not interesting because it's known. We know what's going on now, and that's um, I think that would be upsetting, but I would definitely um, accept those terms to find some of these animals. Yeah, definitely. So um. Will you be going back to um, Windermere, or is there a, another lake monster in the UK that you want to investigate next? I'd like to go to uh, Lynn Tegid, uh Lake Bala in right. North Wales, to look for Teggy. Um, there's a few other places. I mean, 
uh, I would like to look at some of the lesser known lochs in Scotland. Now, there's you know, 31,460 lochs and lochens in Scotland. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a couple of kicking around. Loch Ness is one place. Loch Morar is actually a much better research area because the water is clear for the most mm. part, unlike Loch Ness, which is really peat stained and murky. And so, and there is at least, um, it has, the creature there has been seen um, moving back into the lake over a shingle bank, a shallow shingle bank of water from the river. Um, the river is, I believe it's eight miles long, uh, River Mora. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't have that in front of me. Somebody picked me up on that before I got it wrong. But it's it's not very long, the river that goes out to the sea. There's a few weirs and bits and pieces in the way. Well, my assumption is that they are amphibious creatures. Yeah. And Mora is very, very rural and um, isolated. So I would like to go to Loch Mora, maybe uh, Loch Lochy, Loch Hoich. Uh, I would definitely like to get some submersible uh, cameras at the river mouths, at some of the prime locations in Loch Ness, some of these other places too. And that's something I would like to do more, monitoring from afar, because expeditions cost a lot of money, and there's 400,000 people up to visiting Loch Ness every year. Hmm. If there's only you know, upwards of six sightings, up to 11 on some good years, there, that means that the creature's... It's very um, uh, shy of people, you know. A lot of people say, well, talking about the sightings, well, you know, the, the water behaves weirdly in Loch Ness, so actually it's easy to make mistakes. But I actually say with 400,000 people training their cameras on the loch and wanting to see something, the fact that there are only up to 11 sightings as there was last year, which was a bumper year, is quite curious. Surely there'd be a lot more mistaken identities than there are. Yeah, you think so. Um, Statistically. Yeah, yeah, I mean, um, and if, like you say, if, um, if you could set up more remote cameras and things like that, it would definitely it would make, it, make your job easier. <laughs> it would, I mean, if it could be, if you could have internet access, like, and they've done things like that before. They used to have one at the bottom of the dock in Urquhart, uh, and like uh, I Loquart, and there was a, a 2002 Schumann sighting on that webcam of the head of some kind of creature coming in snapping at something in front of the camera and it was never identified what the creature was you know it's maybe like two frames or something um so i would just like to, to get that done and space out you know stake out a couple of unpopulated locks that are not frequently used that have some access to the sea uh, but don't have any monster stories and just stake them out for a week, you know, and bathe the water and just sit there in a little hidey house, some sort of bird, you know, a bird watching uh, uh, tent and, and just trying to catch a glimpse of it. But of course, there is the worry that I will catch a glimpse of it. And of course, <laughs> you have to decide for yourself, you know, do you really want to see one of these things up close? <laughs> because you're in the situation then, you know, the animal has to react, so do you. Yeah. And um, what what will happen? And um, I had a situation like this actually in Lake Champlain recently when me and Katie Elizabeth, the, the researcher there, we went down to Arnold's Bay where she'd had some sightings at night, the two of us, and we threw some chicken in the water in the dark. And we got the monocular out and just kind of started chatting. It's on my YouTube channel, actually. If you look, Bishop Britain, there's nothing interesting in the footage other than laughing at us 
sounding more and more scared as time goes on, you know, over the five or six minutes of recording, you can see we're kind of getting a bit, um, we're becoming aware that if we do really have a sighting, then it's just us yes. at night in complete blackness. And that's the thing you have to consider. Do you really want to see Bigfoot up close or would you prefer to get it on a zoom lens from afar? I think afar might be the way I'd like to go. Sort of thing, <laughs> yeah. To be honest with you. Yeah, I, I think so too. I have to admit. I mean, it'd be amazing to see, but I think, like yeah. you say, as soon as as soon as you did, I, I think you you realise. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. It's just me and this yeah. creature. I'm in the forest at night. Why did I come here by myself? What is this thing? <laughs> Um, you know, then I've done it once or twice, and I've each time I've done it alone, I just thought, you idiot, what are you doing here by yourself? Uh, more in my mind, just in case I run up on one of these big cats, I think that would be a, a bad situation to be in. Yeah. I mean, they've not attacked anybody here, but you know, if they've got cubs or something, and you know, you walk in accidentally to where they're, um, I was going to say nesting there, but you know, where were they? <laughs> they bedding down, and um, you know, those animals that we know how they're defensive of their of their young. So that's something I worry about a lot. Walking up on on some big cats out in the wilderness somewhere. Mostly, the people that go out looking for Bigfoot and things don't find it. And I think if they are real, and I, I've seen the evidence, but I'm, I'm saying if because that's the best way to to look at it. And they've been here this whole time. It would seem that it's their habit to move away from human interaction. Um, all of the people who have been approached have been lone individuals out by themselves, often women. And I think it's, um, you know, it's about safety, these creatures. So there's, there's a great sighting, actually. Um, I always mention it, um, called the Box Hill 8. But I investigated that one near here. Uh, in Surrey, sorry, just tell you where here is. Um, and that was in 2012. And it's a beautiful area of box hills. You have this zigzag road that goes about 300 feet up the hill. And these earthen steps um, that um, sort of uh, wooded in, winding down this heavily wooded and beautiful rolling hill to the bottom with some stepping stones crossing a river. And people walk it with their dogs. And it's it's... It's a big sweat just walking up there, actually. But some people run it, you know, like crazy people, clearly. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> cyclists too, um, think, didn't they? Oh, I'm not sure if they can cycle that route. Okay. And maybe they do. It's very difficult that route. Um, perhaps they, you know, you know the location, obviously. Then um, I've heard of a box hill in Syria, but it might be it might be the wrong one. <laughs> maybe they 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 cycle the zigzag road. I think. That's what they probably do, and that's right. very obviously that's very steep as well. Um, but this is this more of a drop off on the um, on the steps. Anyway, so somebody is running there in 2012, and they've stopped for a, a bit of a rest on the steps, and got their energy drink. And uh, this lady, she's she's just you know it's, it's late summer evening, but it's light. She's just sitting down. She's been hearing all these sort of what she later described as wood knocks. But she didn't know what they were at the time. Just noises, like somebody hitting wood around in the forest. And she can hear somebody coming down the steps. So she moves to one side to, to get out of the way, thinking it's a dog walker. And I've been there twice. There's lots of dog walkers. Maybe not that late, but, you know, generally. And uh, nobody comes past her. So she hears breathing. She looks around and she sees this 
you know, really solid, heavily muscled animal that looks like a man um, with a, a monkey-like face, a big jutting jaw. Uh, it's got a conical-shaped head, and it's got brown and grey fur, and it's you know, it's really, really hugely built. She's really unnerved by what she's seeing, just looking at her. Um, and then, after 30 seconds, it turns around, and it walks away, checking over its shoulder to, to make sure it knows where she is. And um, then she can smell, and this is always the important thing with Bigfoot sightings, the stale farm animal smell, like a bad smell afterwards, which some people think is a defensive um, capability of this creature, like a, like a scent gland of some kind, skunkish kind of smell. Um, and that's an amazing sighting to me. You know, this person had no interest or knowledge of Bigfoot, um, didn't call the animal a Bigfoot either, which is always very important, I think, and just described a very unusual experience with what appeared to be a, a curious creature checking her out. Okay. You know, uh, from a distance. So, um, so in turn of in, in, in Bigfoot research, from, from what I know, in America anyway, there, there seems to be sort of two fields of thought in terms of what you think. Uh-huh. Are. So one camp, <laughs> yes. one camp says that they're this like a flesh and blood hominid, yeah, like an ape man type creature, and then there's another camp that says that there's something supernatural, basically. Um, yeah. Have you, a, have you um, heard of a podcast called Strange Familiars? I have heard of that, yeah. So that's done by a guy called Tim Renner, and he lives in he's in Pennsylvania, and um, and he's he, a lot of his the episodes of that are about about Bigfoot. He, he's written a book called Bigfoot in Pennsylvania, actually, <laughs> um, uh-huh. and a lot of what his kind of well, he hasn't had any sightings as such, but he's a, he's definitely had things like wood knocks, and he he talks about how. Um, uh, he he would go around in the forest and he'd kind of he found a tree stump and he he put some he put some rocks specifically in place on this tree stump. Oh, yeah. and then he'd come back and and they'd be moved. And now I guess you could say that somebody found them and moved them. But but what he the angle he was coming from is that this this thing whatever it is, is a lot of its behavior, a lot of the wood knocks and some of the things that people encounter is almost like a, like a forest sort of poltergeist. Oh yeah. So, I mean, with, with something like what that lady encountered, um, uh, I, I guess it's hard to really, to kind of categorically state, but, but do you think it's more likely to be one of, or either of those, or is it, do you think it's more likely yeah. a, a real thing, or you mean flesh and blood, or more of a paranormal yeah. thing? Um, I mean, this is this is what's the paranormal side of it is what's normally referred to as the woo yeah. uh, in Bigfoot circles, <clears throat> which I've come into a lot of fire for in the past for sort of going against. But the reason I go against it is because most of these um, creatures are described doing animalistic mm. things. Um, behaving in animal-like ways, and they appear to look like animals. I think a lot of what we, um, um, a lot of what we project onto them sometimes is part of our ego. It's our failure 
to have identified an animal that's living in our right. midst. So it couldn't possibly exist. So I must have seen a ghost. Mm. Um, I'll give you an example. Recently, I read um, an article uh, by a very famous writer, I won't mention, on, um, on pterosaur sightings in the UK. There have been a few. And he said, of course, we know that pterosaurs died out millions of years ago, so this possibly couldn't be the truth. But th at the same time, I don't doubt the witness and believe that what they saw was ghosts of pterosaurs. <laughs> now, that was roundly accepted, but like a round of, you know, largely accepted with a round of applause in the community. Like, yes, what a great concept. And I said, what the hell? <laughs> like, like, it's unbelievable that they could still be living, some of these animals. And yet, ghosts of pterosaurs passed without a murmur <laughs> you know <clears throat> this is unbelievable i think um i did a, a little blog called peddling the paranormal um, a default excuse for uncomfortable truths and i actually presented it at the ghost club in london they invited oh, well. me down i must have had like a death wish or something <laughs> uh, but these guys they were lovely they were lovely and um, they heard me out and they asked me great questions and we had a nice chat we actually they gave me membership as um you know as a as a, as a gift and i thought that was wonderful and um they were such a good bunch of people especially you know considering the title of my piece but in the blog what i kind of talk about is that um especially with this rock moving and habituating and leaving apples out and saying you know bigfoot is telepathically communicating with me or his moving sticks around the rocks that i leave and in america especially there's raccoons right they mm. could easily move those rocks away and, and use them so could people or other animals. I'm not saying Bigfoot is not doing it, but it can't be the default line that it's happening. So what I write about in the blog is, you know, in this current age, in the West at least, you know, with the recession of uh, corporate religion on our societies, we're constantly searching for spiritual meaning to fulfill that gap that we no longer have filled. You know, that church was doing that job for a long time. Now the church is in that, that same place and we're projecting you get a lot of this projecting spiritual meaning onto these things that we're interested in in this case bigfoot um now i'm not saying that some of the things people have described have not seemed quite unusual but you know when you talk about infrasound or um yeah, maybe bioluminescent eyes of some kind um being exhibited in, in some animals that are seen the eyes seem to almost light up without the aid of of lights uh, been shone upon them, I mean. I often think of things like the octopus and the cuttlefish or the chameleon hundreds of years ago seeing changing colours or um, camouflaging and the people that saw them considering that to be a magical power and saying, well, you know, how could it possibly do this? this is a magical power, isn't it? You know, because um, it, it could, this ability that we can't explain, now we can explain it. We understand exactly how it works. And, um, perhaps some of these creatures that people are experiencing also have similar abilities that we don't quite understand yet that could account for some of these paranormal things i realize that so that's like a get out of jail free card <laughs> if i admit that but mostly i believe that what we're looking at is um we're looking at a resurgence in um in the need for spirituality it, but people are they're attaching it to all kinds of things that they're interested in. Um, I, I don't know if you ever remember the story of, um, probably know it very well, uh, Moctezuma II, um, who when Cortez came to you know, to the New World, he uh, thought he was the god Quetzalcoatl returning from the East. 
and he saw his arrival as being sacred somehow in their belief system and invited them in and that essentially led to the end of their civilization he was blinded by his religious um perceptions you know of what should be <clears throat> his perception of what the world should be so even when the men see the ships there's a whole famous story that they'd never seen ships so they imagined them to be floating mountains because their minds made up the detail right. you know there's something we've never seen before so these floating mountains came and out of these floating mountains came these pale men with beards <clears throat> just like the god Quetzalcoatl returning from the east and I always you know I always think about that and think we project what what we believe what we want onto things oftentimes now in um I'm, I'm married and in my relationship um, I'm a Christian and my wife is a Jew and we have children and so I, I I've studied religion as my degree but so I know what it is to have different religious outlooks on life and perspectives and how they can <clears throat> sorry how they can they can really influence how you perceive things you know and how you judge what you're you're looking at you know how you um file it how you categorize it in your mental mm. library yeah i know what you mean it is hard i have to admit like talking to you now it is hard to kind of not want to kind of categorically try and work out what something is whereas the truth of it is that it's it might not you might not be able to do that it's 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 more you'd, you'd like you say you'd, you'd trying to put something onto something rather than yeah yeah <laughs> um, i mean and i am too admittedly you know you asked me about you know what do i think the Loch Ness monster is now what i'm projecting onto it um is my my belief from the sightings that it is a plesiosaur that i've come to that conclusion but you know one could argue that um my lack of issue with the fossil record is probably quite directly related to my religious okay. background in being a Christian. So I would say, oh, okay, well, actually, I'm a Christian. So as a Christian, I'd probably fall into the creationist category, not as an evangelical one. It's not part of my work, but you know that's in the background mm. of my mindset. So it's easier for me to believe that something could still be here other than somebody who has uh, more of a materialistic worldview would say, well, no, we've got our fossil record. This is how it stands. And that's an impossibility because of this. And that affects their you know, outlook of what they're classifying this creature to be too. Um, and of course, we all hope at the end of the day that we won't be subjective um, to our, um, our philosophies when we're looking at the evidence, but it's inescapable. Every scientist, every layman, everybody out there is subject to their own <clears throat> um, preconceptions. And hopefully, it doesn't mean that nothing is true, but hopefully we can just diminish them as much as possible when we're looking at evidence. Um, and I at least try to, to look at that every time and say, well, you know what you believe, you know what you think. So try to shelve that whilst looking at this so it doesn't affect how you're perceiving what's what's being seen right, here yeah okay um one other um like a, a woodworth type uh creature that was the black country stalker um yeah oh well, you like one that thing one i found interesting yeah. is that uh, the, the person that reported it, it was is it, an, it was an elderly couple taking their dog for a walk i think and they they yes. mentioned that this yeah. thing sort of hid behind trees but it made me think mm. there's a there's a a creature in 
in American folklore called the called the hide behind. Uh-huh. <laughs> that, that, um specifically is known to sort of hide behind trees. It's just reading that reading that um account made me think yeah. of that it's it's, it's it's funny how um how uh, these things can kind of correlate over well that correlation is actually seen uh in many many bigfoot reports across the world or well, what well, classes bigfoot as bipedal apes of some kind uh around the world where they're tree peaking it's called and a lot of right. people say it's very similar to like a childlike habit that certain children will you know, put something solid between them and something they're curious and interested and perhaps slightly fearful of and peek around, you know, or like when you stand behind your, uh, your child, stand behind your mother's or your father's legs when you're nervous about something, mm. they, they're in the way and you stand beside or behind them. Um, this tree peeking happens again and again. It's, it's one of the common things like the, um, some of the common aspects are from the, the appearance, the big size, you know, whether it's five feet tall, eight feet tall, it's always massively muscled, you know, for some reason. It tends to have a flat face, like an ape-like appearance, but what makes it seem like is this flat face with separate nose and mouth, no muzzle, essentially. Mm. Um, it's, it's said to, you know, when it's encountered somebody and it's moving away, it, it constantly looks back over its shoulder as it's leaving to make sure it knows where the person is. It leaves a stale smell. It makes these wood knocks. And all of the things, like the tree picking that you're talking about, these are general aspects that seem to apply to nearly every uh, Bigfoot area around the world. Um, and that, to me, is interesting, because most people who report, like these old people, they had, if they hadn't seen Hal there with his um, investigating a different sighting that had taken place nearby, with his gone squatching t-shirt on, they never would have said anything <laughs> to anybody. Uh, they don't use the internet. They're not connected. They don't know what a Bigfoot is. They just saw a strange, hairy man, you know, in the forest following them. And you know, when they got out of the forest, you know, they saw it was a of a gigantic size. You know, um, I think they said well, they couldn't quite agree. I think um, the wife said it was around eight feet tall, but the husband said it was closer to seven. So, fright can magnify things, can't it? But um, still, yeah. his hair covered, it was dark all the way up. And we know as people, we know when somebody is of a giant size and not just tall. I, I used to know a guy, he was a giant a long, long time mm. ago. And he was seven foot two or three. But he wasn't just a giant in height. He was proportionately a giant. You know how that, that happens? Yeah. So, um, you know, he's huge across as well as tall in height. And um, that's what they're talking about, not just a bit of a tall person in a shaggy ghillie suit that gave them a bit of a fright in a forest somewhere. Mm. So, um, do, in terms of um, Bigfoot, the, the most famous footage is the Patterson Gimlin film from 1967. Uh -huh. um, do, do you think that's genuine footage? That's the one I think is absolutely genuine. Now, I was lucky enough in this recent conference in Maine to um, be speaking alongside Jeff Meldrum, who's um, okay. you know, he's a he's a professor, a tenured professor in Ohio University. He's you know come out bravely and investigated that. He investigated the Todd Standing sightings recently and discovering Bigfoot, and he's been on plenty of other things. He did a presentation at this talk, 50 Years of the Patterson Gimlin Footage, 
or 51 to be exact, but that was the title of it. And he got hold of the original footage from the family and, um, and examined it and did a great piece on the musculature and the, the gate, the, the, how nobody's been able to, mm. to um, recreate the gate of the walk. How about there was no costumes at that time, and there hardly are now that, or makeup and effects that where musculature of that mask could be shown, and all of the limbs were in the wrong proportion, in the wrong place to be a human in a suit. So he, in in this clarity from the original footage in which it was displayed, it was really amazing. But one of the things, so I definitely believe that footage is real, by the way. But one of the things he said to everybody is, um, and first researchers, I think this, that's a good way to classify what we're looking at he said you know this has never been disproved however disputed it's been over all these years this you know people are posting all these blob squatches and all the rest of it you know, red circles around things this is the benchmark of bigfoot evidence if you do not have this you do not have anything really um that's going to be the minimum that we're looking to capture anything below that is ambiguous and of course, there's a danger now, especially in the United States. Bigfoot is such a big phenomenon over there that there's a big appetite for footage, you know, for evidence. There's lots of homemade researchers with their patron pages and their GoFundMe campaigns and Donate Now buttons, all the rest of it, going out mm. there and making money from ads and all the rest of it, just, you know, saying they found things. I found very little online that I could class as, as convincing. And some great footprints, of course. You know, the, for some of the footprint casts are amazing. I saw a bunch of those um, when Cliff Barrackman was, was speaking at Crypticon. That was my next talk I did there in, in the US. It was Bobo and Cliff and um, Linda Godfrey was there. Like a bunch of people, Ron Murphy, we all had a great, great laugh. And um, uh, Travis Walton, too, who was, was a very nice guy. So we're all there, you know, talking about these different things, looking at the different casts that these guys had collected. And they were amazing. They weren't. They weren't fakeable. I mean, it's possible that if they fake them, they've done a really, you know, great job of it. He's got that those <laughs> London tracks he talks about, Cliff, hasn't he? Where you, know, you can see the toes splayed and the foots in different positions, and there's dermal ridges and the um, mid tarsal ridge. They also talk about this sort of flexibility of the centre of the the um, Bigfoot foot. Um, so there's lots of evidence like that, but we don't have anything um, that comes close to that Patterson-Gimlin footage. And, of course, the Todd Standing footage is is notoriously disputed. You know, people can't seem to decide whether it's great or not. Have you seen that footage? <coughs> uh, I haven't, actually. No. Oh, wow. You should look that up. If you've got Netflix, just look at a documentary called Discovering Bigfoot. Okay. <coughs> now, he's a guy that's been... Um, vilified in the Bigfoot community, I, I think. And um, I used to really believe that what he captured was Bigfoot. And I suppose, you know, all the things I've heard since have sort of set me either side of the fence back and forth. And, um, you know, he did this documentary uh, where he went out investigating the areas where he'd seen Bigfoot and showed some of his old footage, which is really clear, it's that close. And uh, a lot of people said that their puppets or their him would make up on, and they could be. And um, but it's you know, if it is, if it is hoaxed, it's a fantastic hoax. If it is fake, it's a great fake. He's obviously <laughs> very good if that's what he's doing. 
I watched this documentary and I um, had a friend of mine who um, was the head of FX for Noah and uh, The Hobbit, about the five armies and a bunch of big Hollywood productions she did. Um, and she, she knows her craft. You know, she knows her, her way in and out of this uh, this genre. And I said, could you look at this footage for me? Could you tell me if it could be faked? Because some of the things he's showing you are very clear. They're very close. And it's... Um, it's hard to tell what's going on. She looked at it and she said, you know, some of this could be faked with models and, and makeup and and layering and different things, but what you have to remember is that this is costly work and it's it's high quality work. If he's faked it, he's done very, very well at faking it. Um and then when you look mm -hmm. at his documentary he's made later, it's actually quite a low quality documentary. It doesn't actually seem to stand up to the level high quality level of fakes if they are fakes and that to me stood out at the, from the documentary most of all um and i think the guy just puts himself over badly he's not likable you know um right he could be the greatest hoaxer ever i i don't know i don't know what the truth of the situation is but there's that kind of stuff that we get and that's made me think for a long time do i want to get any footage what if I go down the Todd road, you know, <laughs> um, and spend the next 10 years of my life being vilified by everybody as a master hoax. You know, Andy, he wanted to see Bigfoot and he went out there and he, he caught it. So, of course, it's fake because he always wanted to get it right. It almost um, the desire to find it uh, excludes you from getting the evidence. Right. It can't be you. Vested interest. Conflict of interest, actually. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, going back to the Patterson Gimlin footage, I mean, if if it is a hoax, it's it's an incredible. incredible. I mean, it's yeah, it's, it's, it'd be it'd be stunning. I mean, because it's, I think it was it was made the year before the Planet of the Apes film, and compared to the compared yeah. to the ape costumes in that, it's it's much more. It seems much more sophisticated. So yeah, yeah the, the more I watch that, the more I watch that that footage. I'm more convinced that it's it's genuine. I I simply you should look at the thinker thunker breakdown of that footage and the M K Davis breakdown. He does a lot of breakdowns right. of that PG film as well. Uh, it's it's just not possible. I mean, they actually still don't have that kind of. Of course, we use a lot of CGI now anyway, but they still don't have that kind of ability even now. Mm -hmm. um, and even if it, it if it is a suit, it's it's put on a person of such unusual, um, you know, uh, mutated proportions that nobody else can walk like them or look like them. So, and why the breasts? I mean, <laughs> such yeah. a weird afterthought, isn't it? Or stick some breasts on it because that'll be that'll throw them off the scent. Why would we stick breasts <laughs> on it? It honestly, it's just an odd. It's an odd hoax. If it was to be a hoax, it's such an odd hoax. Um, yeah, I believe that's the one out of all the maybe the Freeman footage as well. Have you ever seen that? That's a lot blurrier, actually. Uh, the Paul Freeman footage, when you see it, he's kind of found some footprints and you see it kind of cross over through some bushes ahead of it, maybe a hundred yards ahead. Um, I think Thanko he also broke that down and showed that you know, these creatures that their neck is position so low in the shoulders they kind of have to turn their body to the side when they look almost you know um yeah and he shows it do that you know do this weird thing and even the angle of 
the head the way it's placed on the shoulders you know that doesn't match up with a human spine so there's these things but there's always going to be somebody that'll say well no because and we're never really going to know until it's 100 percent categorized and like when it becomes the kraken when bigfoot becomes the new kraken <laughs> yeah. then we'll know and stop caring and hundreds of you know private researchers will lose their their sources of income if there are any and um you know <laughs> attenborough will be doing the voiceover <laughs> for the next land of the sasquatch bbc documentary or whatever you know something like that oh cool uh, um do we have time for one more um one more case that you um absolutely yeah would you like a, another bigfoot case Actually, would it be right to talk about um, an unidentified flying cryptid? Yes, yes, absolutely. So um, there's one I've been using a bit recently, and I, I'll give you two of these if that's okay. Um, sure, yeah. Just to give you a different kind of look at it. So I normally reference the pterosaur ones, but and I won't go into the owl man because everybody knows about that. Um, this one is called the Batman of Sight Hill Cemetery. Um, I don't know the time period in which it was seen. Uh, to be honest with you, unfortunately, I don't have that. Um, but it's based upon a, a Glasgow driver returning home at 4.30 a.m. Uh, one morning. He uh, he misses a turning to his street, pulls over to perform a U-turn, and he's startled by something running out of the Site Hill Cemetery gates in Glasgow. So he sees this uh, man, it looks like, uh, wearing a sort of a big kind of cowl, moving extremely quickly down the street. And he says it looks bipedal, something like a man jet black in colour, but what might have either been bat wings or a heavy cowl on it. He drives after it at 40 miles per hour. He's not able to catch up with it. And then when he sort of gets it cornered at the bottom of the street, it um, it's standing there in the darkness and it leaps vertically up in the air and clears a 20-foot fence in a single movement and it's gone, which well. is, I mean, that's <laughs> not a man. Right, but it it it, no. <laughs> it ran manlike down the street, and I, I like his description of, you know, I couldn't see if what it was wearing was a cowl or some sort of wings. It was all in blackness. It's a, it's a very dark time of the morning, but the speed, you know, the the jumping, we're not in man territory anymore. We're an unidentified flying cryptid. Um. So that was a weird one that really stuck with me. And there's a, there's a few like that. And the other one, which I really, really, really like, um, is the, um, is the, uh, what it's called, I call it the screeching, uh, the screeching pterosaurs of, of Whitchurch. Um, and it's a screeching serpent, sorry, Shropshire. And, um, it's basically, I got this from, uh, pterosaur researcher Jonathan Wickham's site. And he had a direct report from a, a witness. Uh, who saw two pterosaurs flying through an area called Witchurch in Shropshire, and that was in uh, September 2017, so very recent. She claims that she heard a screech, a strange screech, and this this whole area, by the way, is like a bird wildlife sanctuary as well. Um, something like, And she's local, so she knows the bird. So she hears a screech, nothing like she's ever heard before, and it's coming closer and closer, and then she sees, coming through the trees, two what she called pterodactyls, flying side by side, they passed the trees and flew off uh, until she lost sight of them. And she said they were much bigger than the biggest heron she's ever seen. They had large beaks and leathery wings. They were both grey in colour. And a few days later, a 13-year-old son comes running in from the garden saying he's seen a big bird with 
bat wings screeching and flying over the house. So that's a, an interesting one. And there was a, a bunch of pterosaur sightings in um, in Britain in the 80s, still apparent pterosaur sightings. And it's just odd, you know, wow, like a pterosaur here. Like if you think of the, the rope in Papua New Guinea or the Congo Mato in the Congo, well, those are massive, you know, forested rural areas that nobody, impenetrable areas, possibly, yeah, maybe, but something like this in the wilds in our country, it seems impossible. But again, the witness sighting is just very regular, very random. There's lots of mundane elements to it. It's not flowery in any way, you know. Um, you have to wonder, okay, if they're not, if they are telling the truth, or if they're lying, for example, what, what's the reason for it? Where does it get them? This wasn't reported on television. It didn't, didn't make the newspapers. Just a you know a concerned person trying to get some answers, contacting Jonathan's website and saying, hey, you know something happened. Maybe you can help me with this. Yeah, I mean, it it seems more and more that there are more accounts of what I think might be called high strangeness being reported by people, and it it seems like there's a real, a real kind of move towards that in terms of people in terms of what people are reporting lots of kind of things out of place but like you say why would this person make that up yeah it's not to say that they wouldn't you know people people like that have problems from time to time and getting attention occasionally tends to 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 fulfill a little void like you know you generally know when you're encountering that kind of person nearly always did, and I had one of them. The sighting is is picturesque. It's um, flowery. It's over articulated. It's it's got too much detail a lot of the time, hmm. um, and there's some desperation to make you to believe it. But what I I noticed with genuine witnesses is that they're usually confused as to what's happened. They try to explain it as being something else, but they can't seem to make it fit into their minds that it was something different than what they saw and they remember mundane details like you have in a trauma situation so it's something like you know i remember i had my pink shirt on that day and the street light was broken it's not normally broken and i was walking down the street and suddenly i saw this owl man or whatever or bigfoot or um alien and those little details that they can't forget in each telling about the shirt and the light or some other silly detail that's not important to the yeah. story always stay in the story because it's part of the trauma it it belongs in the sequence of events and so i look out for small details like that and just just to see if if there's anything in it and you know, occasionally if you're worried you just ask for the story back a couple of times and if people are lying it generally changes within the third or fourth telling right so so with the first story you sorry with the first um uh, Casey mentioned, and um, with that, with that creature that could run really fast, and, and oh yeah, <laughs> that that makes me think a bit of something like um, Spring Hill Jack. Spring Hill Jack, yes, <laughs> um, I, I thought exactly the same thing. So, I mean, well, what do you think that was? <laughs> I honestly don't know. I don't have a single clue. Like. In my mind, again, I have to get rid of my personal desire and prejudice and say it was some sort of pterosaur-like creature running down the road. But then, 
Now, they didn't have those kinds of legs on the ones that we know about in the fossil record. And the other ones that have been described, cited, are described in very classic pterosaur-like sightings. There's also the owl man, you know, of um, Old Morning Church in, um, in Cornwall. It's a five to six foot tall bipedal owl with man-like legs again. So it's, it's hard to say, really. I often wonder if, you know, we could occasionally get some exotic birds here that um, could appear to be um, man-like if they're big enough. We had a Romanian pelican here not so long ago, and that was I think that could stand almost six feet high, you know, or um, you know, there's a, quite a few birds. Like we had a rear on the loose for a while as well in, in, in the UK, and those are very aggressive birds, and they're very tall, and in the dark, you know, that could look like a pterodactyl or something coming at you with its, mm. its strange prehistoric looking face but again they don't quite fit what the witnesses are describing there's lots of mystery um, flying cryptid sightings in the US like the Mothman and, and other things like that and I, I would relate some of those things to that uh, including spring Hill Jack perhaps the Owlman especially but I, I just don't have any idea what they are. I've included them. I normally include the fact that I'm uncomfortable with categorizing them. I, I just wouldn't really know how to do it. Yeah, I mean, the Mothman seemed to... There seemed to be a lot of weird stuff going on Yeah. in, in that part of West Virginia at that time. Uh, yeah, there's so, a lot of weird stuff going on all yeah. over. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, there, a lot of people go into like spiritual side of things and say well you know there was a lot of occult activity in this area or um you know like the mothman thing that the bridge collapsed afterwards there was an mm -hmm. omen of doom and i think that's i think those things are a stretch sometimes matching these things together not to say that i don't believe that um some kind of negative uh, spiritual activity if you want to put it that way could could be caused by you know very illicit practices like magic and whatever else um but um i don't normally just try to fit in some sort of animal into that category um you know i think yesterday's demons probably will be the future's creatures you know like these right. big for often called like hairy devils of the forest right and hairy demons and and things like this in uh, uh, more um archaic more aboriginal settings and yet you know the yowie and the yarin and the captar and the um almas and the woodwows and the sasquatch and bigfoot they've all got a similar description really there's some kind of possibly bipedal ape that that's living on in small numbers in some of our more um uh, wilderness areas and um you know until we we prove yay or nay it's hard to say what's there. But one thing I would say to people about Britain, though, for their concept is, you know, go with a friend, don't go by yourself, but try this. If you really think that we're overpopulated, drive out like a couple of miles out of your city and just pull up and get into a field and just start walking with a friend. You know, take a compass, take your fully charged phone <laughs> and, you know, sat nav and everything uh, on there. But start walking and see how long you can go before you... You meet other humans, other people, and you'd be surprised how easy it is to just walk off into the wilderness and and end up completely alone. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. I mean, I think it's it's definitely something that that people can 
can do for themselves and it's it's, it's definitely something that's it's well worth doing if you're interested in this sort of thing most definitely but I mean, if you get stuck in a bog i didn't tell you to do it it's not my fault <laughs> right okay <laughs> it's your own decision <laughs> go with somebody who knows what they're doing you know <laughs> so you've you brought out one book beast of britain and um mm. you've got another one coming out um 2019 yeah i'm hoping to get it done by the summer of 2019 so that's beast of north america so the beast of series it's going to cover different regions in the world beast of britain was just the starter and i um, i'm pitching a tv series for beast of britain at the moment so i'm trying to get some interest in that um so you know maybe by the time this comes out that will be in effect you know i have had a few meetings but no bites yet still dangling the line you know oh, yeah, um, well, I, I really hope that works out yeah it'll be great good fun it'll be great fun so um yeah so if people want to kind of find out more about you and just um where do they, where do they find you so um you know, all the social media pages of so facebook twitter um i'm on tumblr now pinterest instagram just type in beast of britain to those areas and you'll, you'll find me I, i'd love to receive sightings from people by the way from any part of the world not just britain and i always always answer so if you were to go to facebook.com forward slash beasts all that's the easiest way to get hold of me and um even if you just want to chat about different things i'm, I'm always up for a, you know, a bit of a chinwag about cryptids and, and out of place animals and i'd be happy to do it now there will be a website beastofbritain.com um it's kind of in production it's not looking great at the moment but that should be up and running by the time this comes out for sure brilliant and um, your book can be found on amazon Amazon.com, um, and there will be, uh, so that's available on Kindle. Uh, if you've got the Kindle Unlimited, it's free, and paperback. Uh, paperback's a bit expensive at the moment. There is a revised version coming out on October 17th, which should hopefully be a lot cheaper. Oh, that's brilliant. Well, um, Andy, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's been a really great chat. Yeah, same here. Real pleasure. Cool. Um, I have to do it again sometime. Maybe um, do a follow-up episode. Um... And um, once the once the other once your your beast of America book is out, I'd love to. No, absolutely. And if you know if the series thing comes off, I mean that's a hard thing to pull off anyway. Yeah. Um, and I've you know I've had some good meetings, but people are being quite frank at the moment and saying, okay, it's great, but oh, we're not sure. It's not really what we're doing right now. And that's okay. You know, it's niche. It's very niche, <laughs> and we're going to have to make it. I want it to be entertaining, but I want it to be honest. And, you know, that's um, <laughs> that's not appealing to that many people. <laughs> um, I have, a few years ago, I, I met Brian Blessed at a, at a oh, comic wow. book convention. Um, and I, I got talking to him because he's, he, he's been up Everest and, and I think he's kind of talked about being interested in um, the Yeti and things like that. So I, I, I talked to him about that and asked him about his interest and he, and he told me that he was working on a TV series where he went around the world and and, and kind of investigated them. Um, and <laughs> I, that's never, that series has never come to light. So no. So they I don't know if he, was, if he was indulging me at all. Or <laughs> maybe, or maybe Brian um, just thought that he did. <laughs> did he, in this TV series, yeah, no, did he have like, was he like a king of the, the birdmen or something like that? And was he flying? I, oh, if not, then... <laughs> Maybe you could pitch. Maybe you could pitch. I that. would love to. <laughs> you know, he's in Flash Gordon, isn't he? He's the king of the birdmen in Flash yeah. Gordon. 
And yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's hard. And you just, there's some great people like Seth Breedlove. I was talking to him recently and he's brought out great things like the Mothman of Point Pleasant and the Asian on Chestnut Ridge, Beast of Bray Road is just coming out. And it looks like he's going to have a pretty big series soon, actually, coming on either Amazon or Netflix. Um, oh, great. Which is great. But I mean, he's worked so hard. He's given me some advice. Um, and it's just one of those things. You just have to be in the right place. What I did notice, and you probably noticed in the same way if you went over there to, to the US, I guess, is that they were quite fond of the accent, quite fond of the voice. I tried to explain to them that actually, to most British people, my accent doesn't sound very British. It sounds odd. But outside of the, you know, the realms of you know regional and local accents in the UK to somebody in another country it just sounds like some British guy talking and I get that right. the concept that they get not that you know what I've grown up with and lived with my whole life which is you have a strange intonation that no British person could quite put their finger on <laughs> that throws people off all the time I don't know if you've noticed that yourself but um, you know normally if I'm calling somebody if I'm calling some service center for the first few minutes I know they're not hearing anything they're just thinking what the hell is that and then I kind of stop them and say, so have you got all that just to kind of shock them out of it? <laughs> Let me go from there. You know, um, it's one of those weird things. I don't know how it came to be that way, but it is. But anyway, for you, if you do stuff over there, they're quite fond of British accents. So, um, you know. Oh, great. Well, yeah, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Yes. Well, um, yeah. Thanks yes, again, Andy. This has been a really yeah. great chat. Um, yeah. Take care of yourself if you when you're I out will. there, if you, if you do see something. Just, um, my pants know, off. Hopefully, it's more friendly than you are. <laughs> Don't worry, I can I can run with the best okay. of them. I'll be out of there. Well, listen, thank you so much, Brilliant. and thanks okay. for having me on. Well, you're very welcome. Take care. Ahead of recording this episode, I have to admit, I was pretty skeptical about the variety of cryptids that could exist in the UK. Out of place animals make more sense, though. I mean, when this episode was recorded, a beluga whale had just been spotted in the River Thames. And I do think the sheer number of big cat sightings indicates that at least a few such creatures could be living in the wilds of Britain. A Bigfoot in Surrey, though? I'm not so sure. And could plesiosaurs really have survived this long without being properly recorded? That said, I really do admire Andy's steadfast resolve when it comes to his investigations of such sightings. Um, a plesiosaur is a more likely explanation for a lake monster than a long-necked seal, as we have them in the fossil record. Also, if Bigfoot-like creatures are closely related to humans, isn't it possible that their remains could be misidentified as human and forgotten about? I mean, how many times have remains been found in a forest or wilderness area and assumed to be human and, and then just left at that? You never know. Anyway, if you'd like to find out more about Andy's work, definitely go to his blog and get his book too, so he can keep doing his research and hopefully get the TV series that he mentioned. There'll be links for the blog and the book with the show notes. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time.